Extremism is now part of daily threat. Since the January 6th insurrection, we've seen a growing number of people in the country embracing hateful views, hateful against African-Americans, immigrants, the LGBTQ plus community, and they're becoming more bold, more outspoken in sharing their views and in demanding that government adopt policies to support those views. Alrighty, kiddos, welcome in. Another fantastic week of your favorite weekly political podcast, Alabama Politics This Week with Josh Moon and... David Person. How are you, David? Man, I'm good. You know, I, I think I mentioned to you last week that um, I, I get uh, I get kudos from people about the podcast, mm-hmm. and, and it happened to me, uh, you know, periodically. I, not yeah. not you know not every week, but so I walked into this uh, I walked into this event um, uh, over last weekend, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, a woman immediately came up to me and wanted to shake my hand and just talk about how much she loved the podcast. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's it's funny, yeah. man. It's uh, yeah. we, you know, you you don't you don't hear uh, when you do a podcast. I've learned you mm-hmm. don't you don't necessarily have that same interaction that you would with say a radio call in show. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, where there's a lot of kind of engagement. People are more passive. You know, they listen when they can, they, you know, and, and and so you don't necessarily get a lot of correspondence uh, with with folks. And uh, but, yeah, there are little glimpses from here, you know, from time to time about how many people actually are listening. And I mean, we, we can see some numbers. Numbers still aren't really great with podcasting or in, in terms of trying to figure out who all is listening and uh, right. and how what the numbers are. But, you know, I, I feel like ours are, are, are pretty good. I mean, they're. You know, they're better than most of these stupid radio shows that are <laughs> all the time. But, uh, uh, you know, and so uh, but, yeah, you you will from time to time. I'll get and, uh, you know, I'll just be in a conversation with somebody and they'll just casually mention that they heard something, you know, that's something that we were talking about on the podcast. And I just, you know, I don't say anything. It's just like, oh, you're listening to the podcast. you know, mm-hmm. And it's surprising a lot of times who they are. Uh, you know, because I think we, for whatever reason, I, not, I'm not, not for whatever reason, we, we, there's a reason why we, we attract a, a more, I think, diverse audience of people. And I'm talking about politically diverse and racially diverse and, uh, and all the rest is it, because we talk to a lot of people that don't necessarily find their way on to, uh, radio programs and into other interviews, uh, outside of us mm-hmm. in this state. Uh, you know, like, for example, today, we're going to talk to the president and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center, Margaret Wong. And, uh, you know, she's she's not going to be on the Dale Jackson show, you know, or she's not going to be, you know, she's not going to join up with your right wingers in Montgomery and, and right. talk for a while. Right. Uh, you know, she's not going to be on uh, the APT show. Uh, you know, it's just that that's just facts. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and but she's a, a very smart lady running a major organization in the state of Alabama that does a ton of good. And so we're going to talk about what they're doing at the upcoming uh, Bloody Sunday celebration, the Jubilee uh, Bridge Crossing. Uh, this is going to take place in Selma this weekend. And uh, are you going, by the way? No, I'm not going to make it down there this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been several to several of those. In fact, I want to say I was at one where... Uh, 
I think it was during the Clinton era. I think Clinton was there. I know I've mm-hmm. been down there at least once when there was a president there. I think it was Clinton. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I'm I'm gonna miss it this year. And of course, uh, President Biden is going to be there. Yeah. Um. Now the thing I'll tell you what. There's an interesting, and I know this wasn't on our uh, uh topic list, but it's our show, brought, man. It's our show. We can do whatever the hell we want to. I can't nobody say anything to us. Right. Right. And 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 since you brought this up, I think it's. It's an interesting sort of sideline conversation that I'm hearing about uh, Selma Mm -hmm. in light of uh, what, well, and of course it's triggered in part by what Selma has been going through in terms of trying to rebuild because of the the tornado uh, that, that went through there. Uh, And, uh, but, but, but this other conversation has emerged uh, about just well, whatever happened to Selma in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and 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 if we're going to be honest about this thing, this is a conversation that really actually has been going on, kind of, I would say, not with a lot of frequency, but it certainly has been, uh, you know, it's popped up periodically. This this mm-hmm. people scratching their heads about. You know, okay, so Selma is one of the, it's one of the uh, pivotal places in Alabama's civil rights movement, but it's like the civil rights movement left it behind, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know how many of our listeners have ever been to Selma prior to the to the tornado, but if you have, then you know what I'm talking about. And I, Josh, I know you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like... um I mean, some parts of Selma in the city, some parts of Selma look like a third world country. Yep. Uh, that's no exaggeration, no. right? No, I mean, it's, it's not. It's, uh, I mean, there, there are people, uh, honest residents of Selma, uh, uh, you know, prominent residents of Selma who, who said uh, that there are parts of our city that you, could, you didn't know for sure if the tornado touched them or not. You know, my God. Uh, and, my God. and, and so, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, you know, I heard this a lot, uh, you know, I've, I've been to, like you, I've been to, to a, a few of these, uh, the bridge crossing events. I was at the one with Barack Obama, uh, when he spoke and when it was the 50th anniversary. So there were a ton of, of, of folks there, uh, for that one. And, and that was kind of a conversation then too, is, you know, what, what's gone on with this place? You know, the, the, we, these folks parachute in, to this city for this event once a year. Um, and, you know, you have all these dignitaries and, you know, two blocks from, from where all of this is taking place. It, it's unimaginable that it's deteriorated to this point. And, you know, I, I've heard a lot of, a lot of explanations and I've heard, you know, things. I think what, what it basically boils down to is Selma is a victim of of the civil rights movement and the civil rights resistance. And, you know, it was controlled. There's a reason why there was a fight in Selma is because Selma was controlled by white people. And, you know, and there was a lot of old white cotton money that was in Selma. And there was a fight to to get that uh, control of the city and for equality and for civil rights. And that lasted long past the uh, the march from Selma to Montgomery. And, you know, uh, it's just kind of the same thing that's happened to Montgomery in a large extent. 
uh, you know, there was a lot of racism that went into it. And a lot of people packed up their their money and their belongings and left. And uh, I think it left a void in that city uh, of a tax base. And it there was nothing to replace it with. Uh, and it's and then also, you know, I think ge- geographically, uh, Selma is hurt a little bit as well. You know, there's it's in a it's in a portion of the state where there's not a lot of industry. It's hard to get to. Uh, well, I mean, it's not that hard to get to. It's not like you're hitching up a horse and buggy, but I'm, you know, right. what I'm saying it's not something that the average person just drives by. You know, right. you're not just you're you're not heading down an interstate over there, and that's one of the reasons why uh, that uh, the new interstate thing that they were trying to, or new highway system that they were trying to build, uh, was going to be important for some of those counties in the Black Belt. And you know, it just is. Uh, I, I like I said, I think it's just kind of a victim of of racism. Uh, and and what the the damage that could have been that that can be done when people resist you know the that movement towards civil rights and that's what happened in Selma those people resisted to the point that they just bailed. Well, I think you're I think you're right about what what contributes to it. I think there's some other factors too. You alluded to this, but I want to make sure at least to one of these things. But I want to make sure that I say it explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the black belt region generally, and then places like Selma, Uniontown, uh, specifically these, these little towns, they go through, uh, what we might call a brain drain mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, talented young people that emerge from those communities, they go to college somewhere, you know, they might go to Alabama state Many of them come up here to Alabama A&M University, and then they don't go back for mm-hmm. years, you know, sometimes decades. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not faulting them for that. You know, people have a right to make their choices about life. But what happens, is, but, but, but I guess what, what we're saying is, or what I'm saying is, is that unfortunately those communities have not given them a lot of incentives to return. Mm-mm. The struggle there, the economic challenges there, the lack of, um, you know, uh, industry mm-hmm. there, or at least industry outside of fish farming or, or something like that. Um, you know, and then, of course, for years at one point in time, uh, and I ha- actually had somebody in Uniontown tell me that some people in Uniontown told me that for years, I think it's Highway 80 that runs through Uniontown. Yes. They said that um, the biggest industry there uh, during this was during probably the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. was drugs. <laughs> the biggest industry was drugs, the, yeah, the, the sale that. of drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was because uh, and they would talk about how um, people would come in on Highway 80 and they would just be high portions of Highway 80 became like an open air drug market almost with just people backed up in cars buying whatever they were, you know, I don't know if it was just weed or if it was crack or I can't remember what it was, but that's what they were telling me when I was down there uh, one time. Yeah, it's, uh, I I don't doubt that at all. You know, they've had major, major issues with, with crime uh, and, and other things. And, and a lot of that is just poverty. I mean, it's just poverty based, mm-hmm. you know, and, oh, yeah. um, well, we, we know that. And, you know, it was, you know, it was 
primarily an agricultural town. And when the, you know, and when this, that little kind of spigot of cash was shut off uh, and when, uh, or not really necessarily shut up, but dec- decreased to the point uh, where that you know that you weren't you weren't hauling in free money you know all that money off of free labor and uh, and things that you know it started to decline. I don't, and I don't, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I believe that Selma lost the majority of its population. Uh, its biggest declines came in the '60s, um, and which of course is you know right around the time of the civil rights movement and other things going on. And uh, and so I, I I believe that's when things started to to really go downhill. And you know and, and you you know there, there's this argument that you hear a lot of time. Well, you know they left uh, they left the town and 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 turned you know in, in the seventies I believe seventies or, or early eighties I believe they elected some of their first black officials in the town. And so you'll hear from, uh, from white people all the time. Well, why couldn't those black people control their own town? You know, why could, well, I mean, they had nothing. This is what they had. I mean, you, you they took the, the, yeah, you took the economic base, you know, you took all the finances out of the, out of the entire town, you know, I mean, what do you, and they're like, what, what were you, yeah, that's what you fought for. That's what Jim Crow was about. That's what this whole deal was about was, you know, you making sure that you controlled this thing and they never had the opportunity to get any of it. That's what the whole thing was about. And then you left and you're like, why couldn't they have it? Well, they didn't have anything, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, They've already been picked. Yeah. 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 And, and there was no industry, you know, flowing over there. And they've got a couple of, uh, you know, of, of plants there now that feed into Hyundai, um, uh, but I mean, it's it's still it's still a you know there's there's hardly anything. And so when you're, you're talking about the brain drain, there's there's no reason for them to come. There's nothing that they can do there. You know, yeah. it there's no there's nothing that there's nothing for them to come back to Selma for when they leave and go off to college. There's nothing that they can do with the degree that they receive in Selma for the most part. And yeah. and honestly. It speaks to a larger problem. It's not because it's not just Selma. This is like you said, Uniontown. It's all these little towns along through mm-hmm. the Black Belt that have been forgotten uh, over the course of so many years. And I mean, just it just so happens that they're all majority black. You know, just by coincidence, no, no racism at all. <laughs> uh, and, and so, it, but it, it it speaks to your policies as a state. That's the, I mean, you think that if raw sewage was flowing through the streets of Mountain Brook, that it wouldn't be fixed tomorrow? I mean, exactly. hell, later this afternoon, you exactly. know, there'd exactly. be a guy in a white hat out there t- telling the TV stations about how he's fixing this thing tonight before anybody goes home. You know, that's <laughs> in the meantime, it's been going for 10 years or more in Selmo or in the, in the black belt. And people are still like, what are we going to do? Who knows? Maybe. Maybe President Biden or President Obama or President Trump will do mm. something to help us here, you know? Mm. And it just. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's the complete neglect of that area, and, uh, and they've allowed atrocious standards of living to develop. It's, it's really uh, unconscionable. Hey, have you ever heard of the, um, I don't think they're still doing this, but have you ever heard of this uh, event, annual event that used to happen? I think it was near Uniontown called the Foot Washing. Man, that sounds familiar, but what, what is it? Well, it was a, uh, (laughs) 
Now, first of all, let me say. Here we go. It's going to be fun. I never attended. <laughs> uh, David never is definitely there, attended. Go ahead. <laughs> but I but I was told about it, and then uh-huh. I read about it online. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It was basically a a a uh, an annual event where people would apparently come from all over. Uh, that was a free for all in terms of sex and drugs. Whoa. So it was like, uh, wait a minute, wait, we need yeah. to get a little more specifics on this. Where do we need to go? I'm now, sorry. I want to say again, I believe, and I'd have to Google it. It's been years since I've even thought about this, but uh-huh. this conversation, it triggered that memory. Um, I believe it was either in Uniontown or just outside of Uniontown. Uh-huh. It was on a private, it was on somebody's private property, uh-huh. right? Right. And so people would apparently they would roll up in there and uh, and there would be places where they could get drugs and get high. There'd Mm. be places where there were sex shows or places for them to engage in sexual activity. Mm. And I don't know what else was. I'm sure there was liquor involved. I don't remember what else. But it was like an annual thing. And people knew to go down there for that thing. No, I got to tell you, this is this is not what I was thinking of, because when you said foot washing, I thought there was going to be some Jesus involved, and there's not in this. No, uh, there's, 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 there's none here. It's, uh, no it's not not the white one or the, the Middle no. Eastern guy. He's not involved no, no, at all. No version uh, of Jesus in this. Yeah. No. Um, uh, it's, it, that's, uh, no, I, I have not heard of this, uh, which is odd, because normally something like that somebody would have told me about, because uh, uh, people take... People take great pride whenever you're in the news media. They take great pride in telling you about things like this. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'll never forget. Uh, uh, if you've seen the wire, so the you know the you know the Amster, Amsterdam or whatever it was, and uh, that they created the the free zone uh, that uh, the police uh, guys you know created uh, there in in the, in the show The Wire, where anything goes. And yeah, uh, I was told yeah, I one time that yeah. that there was a there was a similar place like that in Montgomery, and uh-huh. uh, and someone took me to this place uh, to show me kind of I mean just took me like to the outside of it and show to show me what all which street was which where you could go gambling where you could go and, and get drugs and I mean it was it was a uh, so it's interesting. I just googled I just googled this Josh because like I said it's been a minute since I even thought about it. Uh-huh. So uh it's described online as the foot wash. In fact al.com did a story about it back in 2018. Oh. And uh they said thousands of people flocked to the foot wash festival in Uniontown each September to enjoy its anything goes party atmosphere. Mm. While keeping a 127, wow, a 127 year old, and it's described as a quote African American tradition, unquote, alive. But that's that's from an a that's from an al dot com story back in uh, yeah in 2018. Now, that was going to be my 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 question to you about it was going to be, but I guess this this that 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 uh, answers that because I was going to say is this was this a white uh, thing that they did in, in Uniontown? Uh, uh, it it does not seem to, so. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I remember seeing some some videos or something that were posted online or photos. It didn't seem like it was a black thing or a white thing. It just seemed oh. like it was a thing. A mixing. And people yeah. were going there, but this is describing it as a as a 
African-American thing, but, uh, and maybe that's where its roots were, but I, I could have sworn I'd seen people of all hues there just kind of doing whatever, huh? you know, wow. and walking around however. That is, but, that's odd, man. I've just never heard of this. Mm. Oh, and the that's... reason I brought it up was because it, again, you're talking about a, a, a poverty stricken area uh-huh. where there's not a lot of industry, but then you have this event that yeah. draws thousands of people there. And apparently he was making a truckload of money, I would imagine. Ah, so I think maybe we've touched on the solution to our black belt issues. <laughs> Franchise the foot wash. That's right. <laughs> foot washes for everybody. We can rebuild Selma by next Jubilee. Next oh year's Bridge goodness. Crossing Jubilee is also Bridge Crossing Jubilee slash foot wash. <laughs> <laughs> I already know what uh, I already know what the title for this episode is going to be. Our producer <laughs> <laughs> franchise the foot wash. <laughs> right, franchise and the foot wash, baby. Uh, <laughs> oh man, oh, man, that's uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, listen, see. This is what I'm talking about, okay? When I was talking about earlier, people listen here because they can't get... They, you think they're going to get information like that from that Codsack Matt Murphy? You know, no! <laughs> no! <laughs> I don't even think he's in the state anymore. I don't know. I don't listen. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I, but I, th- I think somebody told me he moved somewhere else. <laughs> but anyways, that's... Uh. Uh, I've been saying you're not getting that. Yeah, this is information for life, okay? And you're not okay. getting it anywhere else. Okay. Uh, that's that's all I'm saying. Um, yeah. uh, okay, all right. So we, we've got we've got all that. This was not how we intended on opening the show, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was much better than what we what we what we had. This is the way it works sometimes. Okay, go with it. Go with the flow. Uh, <laughs> what we were actually going to talk about was you know the legislature is. Coming back into session next week, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, hide your wallets, and as mm. they say, and uh, they're going to open. Uh, rumor has it uh, they're going to open with a special session inside the session uh, called by Governor Kay Ivey and, and her State of the State address uh, next week, which she typically gives on the night before uh, session is set to open. And uh, that uh, session will deal with the distribution of the ARPA funds, the federal government funds, which I thought, given our uh, ill will towards federal government and in federal intrusion, that we would have just returned. I can't yeah. understand why we're taking these things since we should have sent it all back. So yeah, but uh, apparently we're going to hmm. keep it. We're going to keep the money. Hmm. And uh, Curious. Hmm. Yeah, I know. So I think they have somewhere around a billion dollars or so to dole hmm. out. And uh, they, they, there have been a lot of the same... Uh, same things talked about, uh, broadband, infrastructure, you know, all this sort of thing, you know, roads and bridges and all that. Um, and which, can I say, haven't we spent enough damn money on broadband yet? I mean, what? how much, uh, we could have run wire to the whole state at this point. I, yeah. I don't understand how much more money we need to spend. Uh, it, I guarantee somebody's stealing some money. Somebody is stealing some money somewhere. All right. Mm, mark, okay. mark it down. Somebody's stealing some money somewhere. Uh, but because I'm not, you know me, and you know how much I've talked about the need for broadband and broadband access in this state. Yeah, we're, we're uh, uh, it, yeah. yeah, but I mean, come on, y'all. I mean, at a point, you know, how much are you paying per foot for this? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, all, creeping into the conversation, creeping into this conversation now has been 
not expanding Medicaid, but figuring out a way to deal with our mental health issues that we have in the state that are going going unaddressed and also uh, rural health care and closing hospitals and a, a lack of care. You know, 60,000 plus Alabamians are about to go off of Medicaid at the 1st of April that have mm. been covered because of the pandemic. Mm. Now, they will join roughly 250,000 others who are also currently in that Medicaid gap uh, because they make a little bit too much money uh, to qualify for Medicaid, which is not hard to do in Alabama since it's, what, less than 12, a little under $12,000 uh, mm. per year. Um mm. And they, but they make, uh, they don't make enough money to afford insurance. So we we have, then those people drive up the cost for everybody else. And so it seems as though we're nearing a push for Medicaid expansion. Hmm. You know, because you also mentioned too about uh, some things that, uh, that our senators Tuberville and Britt have signed on to. Yeah, the um, you know, and I think we should credit them for this. They um, signed on to a letter that uh, was written by a bipartisan um, a group uh, from uh, the Senate uh, that is uh, pushing for support for rural hospitals. Hmm. Uh, so they're, uh, they're what they want um, is to um, is to try to help save these hospitals because they're saying that, um, um, the, uh, the low wage, uh, let me see, what is that called? Yeah. The low wage index hospital policy. Uh, and I think this is, you're talking about basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, that was in effect that it's going to end, uh, in September and, uh, at the end of September. And so it needs to be extended. They're saying, um, now here's an interesting statistic. According to a 2023 report, that's this year, mm-hmm. there's, it's estimated that 61, between 61% and 80% of rural hospitals in Alabama have a negative operating margin. Mm-hmm. It's also estimated that about 50% of hospitals statewide operate in the red. So what we have here is half or more of our hospitals that are in finan- in rural areas are in financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, another report that came out this year estimates that Alabama hospitals have lost almost, and this is an astounding number, Josh, almost one point five billion dollars. Since the start of the pandemic, all of this is uh, being reported uh, by the Montgomery Advertiser. That's this is really stunning. No, it's uh, it it is and it's not. If I'm not mistaken, Alabama has in over the course of the last seven or eight years have had, or maybe it's a, maybe it's a decade now. Uh, they've had eighteen rural hospitals close. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, let's let's think about this. I mean, 18 rural hospitals close. Uh, those, if you know rural hospitals, you know the areas that they serve. You know how far out a lot of those people are and how far away from uh, a major medical center they are, how far away from ER emergency care that they are. Uh, 
many of them, when those hospitals closed, were then left to drive an hour for emergency care. Um, there think are about that for a minute. Yeah, you're you're in a medical crisis and you got to drive an hour. How many? Mm-hmm. There are going to be people that are going to die. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that, yeah. they they replaced emergency care with with your your standard dock in a box uh, place. You know, your yeah. your your med surge clinics basically that close at five or six o'clock every day. Right. Um, you know, and, and past that, you know, I, I, maybe if you know a doctor, you can call them at home or something. I don't know, but you know, or, or a nurse to, to get some help. But the, you you don't have much. Thirty seven counties in this state. Thirty. Listen to this. 37 counties in this state do not have a licensed operating pediatrician. So that's more than half because there's yeah. 67 counties in the state. Mm-hmm. That's crazy, man. Insane, isn't it? Isn't, yeah. isn't that insane? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is our our health crisis in this, you know, as as, as Bill Britt, uh, boss at APR, is fond of saying, we have the world's greatest healthcare system if you can afford it. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that's basically what we have here. We have you can get good care in the state of Alabama if you can afford to live near it or go to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but increasingly, increasingly, so much of the state uh, cannot meet that burden, and you know, and it is a well, burden. And and the other thing to me that's crazy about it is even if you have money mm-hmm. and resources and proximity, what if you're on the highway, you're driving from Huntsville or Birmingham or Montgomery, and you're trying to get, let's say, down to the beach? Mm-hmm. Well, you got to go through some rural areas. You know, what if you have an accident? Mm-hmm. Then what happens to you when you're in one of those 37 counties or or one of those counties that doesn't have a rural hospital or one of those counties where the hospital is barely hanging on? What happens to you then? That's why I think this is so freaking short sighted of the, the of our governor, of our legislature, of our U.S. senators, even though, again, I applaud the U.S. senators for what they're trying to do now. It's been so freakingly short-sighted of of the Republicans that lead this state and have led this state. Yep. You know? Um, yes. <clears throat> to resisted resisted simply because it was a proposal presented by Barack Obama. That's yeah. the only reason they did it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it just it's just unconscionable. And and not only did they resist it on the front end, but then they watched, they stood by and watched while hospitals closed. Mm-hmm. And while the data that we just shared began to present itself, and they still didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My God. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, there is a, there, there are literally hundreds of people who die in this state every year due to a decreased access to care, um, uh, and whatever it may be. And people say, well, you can always go to the emergency room. Well, you, you can't, you, you, you don't do that, okay? If you don't have that money, to pay for that, the majority of people don't go for care until it's too late uh, mm-hmm. or it's way down the line in simple problems that could have been fixed or managed through basic care uh, have, have progressed to the point where it's now going to end up costing them their lives. They're going to die sooner because they didn't manage this, this, 
these relatively simple problems. And, you know, and, and we have this all the time and people like to discount this and, and they don't count it as a as a death related to, to a lack of access to care. But it is. It absolutely is a death related to a lack of access to care. Mm-hmm. And it, it's you know, it, it's I, I don't know, man, it, it honestly, I have become so angry with the entirety of our healthcare system. And the way that we go about it and really the stupidity that's involved in it, it is if you actually take a step back and think about it, it's it. Imagine any other thing in your life that you needed to have and survive and that that was relatively costly Um, groceries, for example. Let's say that you were going today and you've got to have something to eat. You got to you got to you got to have something to eat, but you go to get it. And nobody can tell you the price of it until later, after you've consumed it, they send you the bill that you know you can't pay. You know, the insanity of that is off the charts. Yet this is how we handle healthcare, or the fact that the price for everything changes based upon who's paying for it. Whether or not, if you have insurance, it's this price. If you don't have insurance, it's this price. If you make this amount of money, it's this price. But if you make this amount of money, it's another price. You know, and and it's just it's what are you talking? You know, why why can't I know? It's like you know when you go into a doctor's office and you say, "Well, how much is that going to be?" They look at you like you've grown a grown a second head somewhere. You're like, what? I'm, I don't know. It's I mean, you know, the shot's the shot. What are you telling me? What are you asking me? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just. Why is this a thing? And, and you honestly, you're kind of shamed into this. And and all, but all of it then is boiled down to the the real stupidity of all of it is the fact that somehow or another, our politicians have been shamed into not expanding Medicaid because it was a policy presented by this guy. You know, forget who that guy even was. But I mean, you know, forget forget that he was the first black president, a Democrat, or whatever. But wh- whoever he was, that it was right. presented by this guy. That's the reason why they didn't expand it. Yep, that's it. It was free. It was free for, for for I mean, a one hundred percent covered for five years, and as it ended up, would have been one hundred percent covered for like nine years. Hmm. And the savings of that that we could have made off of that would have paid for it. For years more. And uh, it it just. But it was about politics. It was about politics on the front end and and probably the uh, politics in the backdrop also being race, I think. Yes. Uh, The race of the president. But yeah, it was. But it was was about politics for sure. 100%. It was more politically advantageous for them to oppose a policy that would have helped the people that they are supposed to be serving than it was to pass this and take the political blow and stand up later in life and say, you know what, I may be out of office, I may have lost an election, but by God, I saved thousands of people every year in my state where I live, and I can look people in the eye and I can sleep good at night. And I honestly, God, I don't know how Robert Bentley uh, and some of the people uh, that were in the legislature at that time, and, and some who still are today, I don't know how they sleep at night. Knowing what I don't either, man. To, to some of these people. it was It was... There's no question it could have been done. If we can pay $2 billion to build a couple of damn prisons, then we can sure as shit expand Medicaid. So 
Anyways, all right. With that, on that high note, we're going to slide out of here and uh, come back with uh, Southern Poverty Law Center uh, President and CEO Margaret Wonk in just a minute. Back in a sec. I'm David Person with Alabama Politics This Week. You know, you listen to me and Josh every week, and we have a blast as we talk about Alabama politics and culture and as we interview newsmakers and journalists about Alabama politics and culture. Thanks for your support of this great podcast, and I hope that you will continue to not only listen, but to share it with your friends And also give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening to it. Thanks a lot. All righty. Welcome back. Alabama Politics This Week. Josh Moon, David Person. And we are happy now to have the president and CEO of the Southern Poverty Law Center, Margaret Wong. And I notice... Every time I say president and CEO, uh, you get a look on your face. Uh, like, uh, is it, uh, we, we just discussed, you've been there for three years, which we couldn't, we, we're, oh, uh, you know, but we know you'll be there for a long time. But is it, it, does it still feel new? Are you still excited to be in that position? It really does. It really does, Josh. And, you know, it's been wonderful. I actually began at the beginning of COVID. So I didn't meet any of my colleagues. I didn't meet any of our partners for the first year. I didn't move down to Alabama for the first year I was in this position. Oh, really? So I finally moved down uh, in 2021. And it's been it's been great to be back in the South. I grew up in East Tennessee. So this was a bit of a homecoming to, to return to the South. Yeah. Um, and it's been a fantastic experience. Yeah, I still get a little gleeful every time somebody says it. <laughs> I was going to say, it uh, It sounded like you resisted the move to Alabama for as long as possible. Completely <laughs> understandable. Uh, we get it. Uh, it's, uh, but no, it's it, we, we had you on because y'all are going to start back a tradition, uh, which I thought was a very, very important tradition. Uh, that one that was uh, uh, John Lewis had for a long time, uh, yeah. a wreath-laying ceremony. Uh, kind of tell us uh, if you could what what's what's going on um, with that and and why y'all felt like it was uh, a big deal to kind of bring that back. Absolutely. Well, you know, John Lewis always talked about the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement. He really wanted to credit and uplift the contributions of everyday folks who made the civil rights movement possible and successful. Um, And so for him, the Civil Rights Memorial, which honors the martyrs of the civil rights movement, was really the perfect place to each year come back and lay a wreath in honor of the folks who gave their lives, who made so many sacrifices for the civil rights effort. So he started the tradition. He came every year. He brought colleagues from Congress to come down and other influential people people. And they joined him in this pilgrimage to honor the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement. When he died in 2020, it was a tremendous blow, not not just for us, for the whole country. Um, but we we stopped. It was also the moment of the pandemic. So we we stopped the tradition. But this year, it felt absolutely right that we not only 
return to the tradition of honoring the foot soldiers, but we also honor John Lewis and the role that he played and the leadership that he provided to this important effort. Hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, y'all. Y'all are going to start back with that um, on on Friday, right? Yeah, that, uh, yeah. Because the the bridge ceremony, the Bloody Sunday uh, commemoration, is uh, the fifty second annual. Is this uh, this Sunday? Uh, and, and John Lewis would often come down. I've been to a couple of those. Uh, uh, he would come down uh, and bring the, his colleagues with him uh, from Congress and, uh, and and do the thing before the wreath laying ceremony beforehand. And so y'all, y'all are going to do this on Friday, right? Yes, we are. And it's cool. open to the public. We hope folks will join us because, again, this is really about honoring the folks who came before and making sure that people know about their contributions. Mm-hmm. The Southern Poverty Law Center, Margaret, has a tremendous legacy um, forged during some, in, forged by being engaged, I think, in some very <clears throat> interesting and, and necessary, but also very challenging struggles. As you look at where things are today, do you see challenges or struggles or objectives that need to be made that are as clear-cut as those were when Morris Dees was taking on the Ku Klux Klan? David, I think you can see that the challenges every day in the headlines of the newspapers, in the current debates in Congress, we have a situation where Extremism is now part of daily threat. Since the January 6th insurrection, we've seen a growing number of people in the country embracing hateful views, hateful against African Americans, immigrants, the LGBTQ plus community, others, and they're becoming more bold more outspoken in sharing their views and in demanding that government adopt policies to support those views. We're seeing that across the South and across the country. And so I think it's actually even more clear today. It's not just fringe extremist groups. It's not just the KKK. It's actually elected leaders. It's other community influencers who are embracing hateful ideology. And there's never been a more urgent call for the work that we do. I would also just note, not just litigation, we still will need litigation to fight this. But it's also important that we're doing education. It's also important that we're doing advocacy in state capitals and in Washington, D.C. So all of that work feels even more urgent today. Mm-hmm. Um, the the outspokenness has been really stunning. I mean, we've heard it, you know, even from uh, the former president of the United States uh, making um, racist remarks about uh, the Asian ancestry of uh, of uh, the <clears throat> of the. Uh, the Senate um, Majority, or, well, yeah, now the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Mitch McConnell. 
Um, and uh, we've seen it, of course, with hate crimes and um, in a variety of faction, fashions. But what we, I guess, it seems like to me the difference is <clears throat> while we do have specific acts of hate that we can point to, it's it's a lot more challenging today because there's not one clearly identifiable bad guy, you know, centralized. It's sort of decentralized hate, you know, and, and a lot of it is expressed through, ide- you know, ideological statements, but it's really decentralized and there are not as many hateful, overtly hateful, violent acts uh, coming from a centralized place. Does that make it more of a challenge to address? I think that's a great point. And we've actually, you know, we have a, a team of folks here at the Southern Poverty Law Center that monitor and track hate groups, the intelligence project, we call it here. Mm-hmm. And they have certainly documented this, um, that there, there have actually been rise and fall, but significant growth over the last five, six years in the number of hate groups across the country. But that's not really capturing the sentiment of hate, because the sentiment of hate today is really being spread and embraced on social media and on the internet, on the dark web, on mainstream media platforms. You can find an embrace of hateful ideology or even just hateful words. Um, that we just haven't seen before. And so, yes, that does make it challenging. On the other hand, we talk a lot about the purveyors of hate, the platforms that facilitate and enable that kind of hate to be put out widely. And the responsibility that social media platforms or companies have to ensuring that their products and services are not being used to foment hate and hateful acts. So I think maybe it's um, evolved, but I don't think that it's uh, any less important to take this battle on right now, because if we can go after the people who are facilitating and making it easy, then that will make a difference in how much people are hearing about these kinds of hateful um, views and whether it seems to be as widespread as they're believing it is because they see it on Facebook or on Twitter. You know, and again, I'm, I'm asking this as someone who has been an enormous fan of the Southern Poverty Law Center. But I, I do feel compelled to ask nonetheless, if, um, you know, it, it, it seems like it's, it's a little different when your, your adversary, the purveyor of hate, is a multi-billion dollar uh, multinational, essentially, uh, or global corporation who's saying, uh, well, we're not responsible for what people are saying on our platform. You know, it, it seems like it's a different kind of challenge when a purveyor of hate is a state legislature that is saying, as as is being said in this state, you know, that we're no longer going to allow 
or we're going to fight against certain kinds of uh, speech and education mm-hmm. that, um, of course, challenge uh, the premise of white supremacy. You know, you got a governor in Florida doing the same thing. You've got a former president of the United States doing the same thing. It seems like the purveyors of hate are, 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 are people or institutions that you just can't, I mean, it just seems like the job may be too big. I mean, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying don't do the job or don't try, but I'm just saying it, it just, to me, as I applaud you and, and want you to do what you're doing, I also think, my God, how are they going to be successful? David, I'm going to bring you on the road with me so that you can help me recruit (laughs) folks to come help us with this challenge, because you're absolutely right. It is a huge task. It's always been a huge task. But I think, on the other hand, I believe this, David. I believe that a majority of people in this country do not embrace hate. A very significant majority of people in this country believe in our democracy, want to see a pluralistic, multiracial, beautiful society, and don't buy into this. And so the question is, how do we engage those folks to feel like this pushback that we need to do is part of their responsibility, part of part of what they should be doing too. It's not just those of us at the SPLC or in the civil rights movement who are pushing back. It has to be you know, an American effort to push back. And yes, we need a lot of partners and allies in this struggle, um, but that is how we'll win, is if we can build a much stronger sense of community who recognize that's what we have to do together. Hey, you know, um, uh, just to kind of to kind of piggyback on that, I, I know, you know, I've, I've used the intelligence project for, for data and stuff for a number of years. Uh, I know of some of the other publications that are there. Y'all once, you know, on occasion employed this freelance writer. My God, he was so good. Uh, but then he <laughs> lost his number. And so I don't know what happened, but it's okay. It's okay. Uh, but it's fine. Uh, you know, and I just, uh, what I, what I do wonder though, is, is it seems like, cause like David said, that it's not just the purveyors you have, I think in the past you had uh here's this set of of media outlets and people that that we can trust that we know are going to give us straight answers and that the majority of Americans went to for news and information and so when you had them say oh the, according to the SPLC this is a hate group well now all of those people or a lot of those people not all of those people but a lot of those people have have chosen their own separate entity to receive information from and some of those people are saying hey that SPLC they're a hate group themselves you know uh, what are they talking about and i mean that breaking through that noise in this day and age is a whole other task uh and and so I'm going to kind of tie this back in because we had uh, Taffany English on with us and she's going to mm-hmm. be uh, the Alabama director and, and open that. Is that kind of state level focus? What what is that part of kind of getting through the noise? Definitely. That's that's part of the thinking behind it. It's also part of our revised and reaffirmed mission that we want to be focused on the South. Because we believe 
that change that comes from the South can affect the whole nation. And so by focusing on these challenges here, mm -hmm. we think we can show the path, show the way forward to the rest of the country. The South has always been the home of the most extraordinary, passionate, resilient activists for civil rights. I thought rights. you were going to say racist, but okay, yeah, those two. You're right, both, those two. Both, you're absolutely <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. But, but right. if, you know, that that is how we had the civil rights successes of the 1950s sure. and 60s. And we've forgotten that. Um, and we, we aren't looking to the activists and the organizers in the South in the way that we've seen in the past. So for us, that was a natural. Mm -hmm. let's, let's make sure that we're supporting organizing work, activism on the ground in our states, because we think that's how we'll support the larger movement that we're right. trying to build. And yes, Taffany's role as the new director of our Alabama state office is very much to ground our work here in Alabama, to build relationships with organizations and community leaders to really help transform what, what it's like for people here in our state. Yeah, you know, uh, I, um, I, I want something you said, I think you're, you're right. The majority of people are not going to embrace hate. And I think... I think an overwhelming majority of people want to believe that they are good people, that they they're not racist, that they don't, uh, that, you know, that they 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 believe in equality. And I think you know, just a, a case in point. I think the, if you went over uh, next week and and polled the Alabama legislature, a hundred percent of them would say, absolutely not, not a racist bone in my body, you know. And which you know, then you would say, well, okay, then what about all of these policies? Uh, but you know, so. Is there, how do you, is the balancing act now, how do you say, okay, that's what you want to be, and we believe you, but here's where that's not carrying through, and, and, and how do you get to that balance without angering that person or allowing the uh, the the push of anger from the other side because that's all it is—a is push of anger from the Fox News groups or whatever. They're look at what they're trying to take away from you, white people. Uh, you know, and and so how 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 is that balance? How do you, is there, is there a way to strike that balance now? You know, I actually started my career working uh, in the U.S. Congress, and so I learned early on that the only way to get legislation was to recognize that everybody needs to get something out of it. Mm -hmm. Everybody has to feel that their values, their goals, their priorities are somehow advanced because of it. And that's really the key. To your point, most, most people, maybe all people don't believe that they have any biases or prejudices. Mm -hmm. And pretty much all of us do. <laughs> They're different from one yeah. another, but everybody has some kind of bias or prejudice. That's just human nature. That's what the way our brains, you know, develop ideas about, mm -hmm. uh, about the world. And so by being open to hearing about the way that your worldview might affect things and how somebody with a different worldview might see it means that you have an opening to talk about where you might find common ground. And really that's what we have to do in every state, even if you might have very conservative views on some issues. You mm -hmm. still care about your family. You still care about your community. There are things you want to help 
people in your community, we can find ways to work together so that everybody can see a positive outcome. It's not easy. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> we all know how hard that can be. But I sure. actually believe that most of the time we can find ways that really benefit everyone if we take the time and really build the relationships and demonstrate that we have agendas that overlap. We're not at odds. We actually want the same things for our family and our communities. Uh, last thing, and we'll, we'll get you let you get back to the to the good work. Um, is it? You know, I notice in a lot of these uh, uh, right wing sites and you know uh, the Fox News world and everything that they you know whenever the Southern Poverty Law Center is brought up, they you know it's uh, they they take special care to treat it with a negative connotation. You know, they take special care to to throw you under the bus to talk about this or that, um, and you know there's never any any information behind it to, uh, to do so. But still, I feel like over the course of time, that repetitiveness has uh, has put it in the minds of a lot of people that the Southern Poverty Law Center is a left-wing liberal organization that's only pushing these, you know, these Democrats down our throats or whatever. Um, when you came in and uh, having been there for now for three years, is that something that you've had to try to fight against? And and if so, I'm like, what what do you feel like you've been able to accomplish in that regard? Or am I just an idiot and it's it's not really that big of an issue? Oh, no, you're not at all, Josh. It, it is definitely an issue. I would say um, the summer after I started in 2020, the Republican National Convention did not adopt a policy platform, but they did adopt a number of resolutions about some specific issues, including one that was very critical of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm -hmm. And I was really stunned that of all the things that the Republican Party wanted to tell the constituencies of the United States about its beliefs and its views and its positions that criticizing us was a higher priority than most of anything else they could be talking about. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's unfortunate. But I think what you've described is actually really a commentary on how spin and talking points can push a narrative in a certain direction, not necessarily based on fact. The SPLC is a 501c3. We do not endorse candidates. We do not push a political party. We do our work and we do it without any partisanship. And if people aren't happy with our work, they're gonna call us all kinds of things, but we can't let that stop the work. And we can't let the sort of political spinning of our work distract from what's really important. So it has been tough, but I think you'll find that we're, we're pretty committed regardless that this work is really important and that we're going to be here to do it. Well, you know, as you know, facts are liberally biased, uh, so uh, that's always a problem. And uh, and listen, the reason they went after you is because you you keep you know naming all the hate groups that make up their base. So yeah. it's, you know, it's yeah. how it works. But listen, uh, Mar Margaret Wong, uh, CEO, president of Southern Poverty Law Center, has uh, been with us now for a while, and we're going to let her get back to work. But we really do appreciate you yes. coming on and. Uh, and more than that, the the work that y'all do, uh, I know you take you're 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 out there taking hits all the time from from people 
um, and, and I've driven by the place many times. I see all the armed guards. So I know, uh, you know, what, what you're up against every day, day in and day out. I knew Morris Dees for a long time, still do, and, uh, and, and still talk to him on occasion. And, um, and so I know some of the hits that he took along the way and, and the organization, you know, no matter what happened at the end, I know the organization that he built has done tremendous work. And, and I'm glad to see y'all carrying that on. And if we can be of any help and assistance, in uh, in any of it, uh, feel free. We are we are always here to help people who are doing the good work like y'all are. So, um, so thank you so much for for spending the time with us. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Josh and David, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, thank you. Awesome. That was Margaret Wong with the Southern Poverty Law Center, and uh, we're going to slide out. We'll come back, wrap this baby up in just a minute. Alabama politics this week. Welcome back again. Uh, thanks to uh, Margaret Wong for for spending some time with us, and mm-hmm. uh, it was good. Uh, you know, it's a that's a tough job uh, that she's man, got, man. but uh, man, they, you know, they're they're out there kind of banging their heads against the wall like we are here a lot of mm-hmm. days, and uh, and uh, more power to them. I, and we would uh, would love to do more stuff with them, and if we could help, and yeah. you know, that's a honestly they're they're doing. I know what people you know on the right think about the Southern Poverty Law Center, but you know. I don't care, you know, honestly. Uh, yeah. It's they they've done they've been on the right side of things for a long, long time, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd like to help them continue to be. So. Man, absolutely, absolutely. I that's they they are in that category of organizations that, as far as I'm concerned, is doing God's work. I yep. really believe they're doing God's work. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's tough, and they face a lot of hurdles and a lot of threats and a lot of idiots. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that's. And whenever you can oppose uh, those folks on things, you're, you're doing you're doing good things. So, um, yeah. all right, let's. Uh, there are a couple of things that we want to get to. Well, number one, before we move any further, let's because uh, we don't talk enough about uh, the good things that happen from people who are practicing good government out there, the folks that we elect, and one of those consistently, the most consistent, in fact, is Terry Sewell, uh, who just goes around every day. It seems like just goes around every day talking to people in her district and figuring out what they need and what they want and then figuring out a way to get it. I mean, is there, honestly, and I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not even being like, yes, you know, I support Terry Sewell's politics way more than Robert Adderholtz or certainly Barry Moore's or any of those other crimes. But, but let's just talk about in, in terms of work in terms of actual work for the people of their district, do you see anybody who is even close to what Terry Sewell does for the folks of, of her district? No, I, I don't actually. Um, I can't think of one person uh, in the Alabama congressional delegation who has been more effective in that uh, other than, you know, uh, recent departing uh, Richard Shelby. I yeah. think, you know, what he did, of course, 
was uh, was phenomenal and and um, phenomenally beneficial to the state in many ways. Even though I didn't agree with his politics, right? Uh, I absolutely agreed with his uh, <laughs> with his uh, with his commitment to 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 getting federal dollars yeah. into this state in ways that I think have been productive. Straight yeah. cash, homie. As That's Randy it. Moss Straight say. cash, homie. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's just remarkable. You know, I, we, I get all of the, the press releases from everybody. Okay. They all come through my email inbox. So, you know, the stuff from Barry Moore and Jerry Carl and Robert Adderholt and, uh, you know, Dale Strong now and, uh, with Gary Palmer, all, all of them come through. Terry, Terry Sewell's as well. And it is just absolutely remarkable how much stuff Terry Sewell gets done. In a given week, it is. I mean, it's just it's it's nuts. It is it is ten to one over most of those guys, and and I understand that this was not even during the Biden administration uh, solely or during the Obama administration. This was also during the Trump administration. She was getting things done. It mm-hmm. was it's it's remarkable, and she does, she's also divvying up now uh, HBCU broadband funds. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. She's got. Um... She was able to uh, announce, uh, I guess, earlier this week, about $18.4 million uh, is going to be divvied up between uh, four HBCUs for broadband uh, enhancement. And one of those institutions, actually, is Drake State uh, Community and Technical College, which uh, I'm, I'm on their foundation board, so I was glad to see that. Uh, because Drake State is doing some great things in North Alabama and under the leadership uh, of President uh, Dr. Pat Sims or Patricia Sims, uh, you know, there's, there's some really some really good things are happening there, and they're really serving the community. So I'm I'm proud to be yeah. affiliated with Drake, and I was real happy to see that. Well, I apologize to everybody. I was not aware of our clear conflict of interest on this topic. <laughs> uh, did not know that David was benefiting personally from all this. So that's, not benefi- uh, no, me, not benefiting personally. I'm joking. I'm joking. It's, uh, <laughs> not everybody knows better than that. Uh, it's uh, no, it is. That's great. And and yeah, just again, it's just like like I was saying, it, it is just more more work that that she's put in for for yeah. people and uh, and meeting actual needs of people. You know, meeting the actual mm-hmm. needs and addressing issues that are, that are plaguing. Uh, her community, and it's a, kind of the same way with the storm cleanup stuff in in Selma and Dallas County, and and around. It, it's just it's just been kind of remarkable to watch mm-hmm. the the whole work, and given these other people that we have there. That and, I, I guess they're golfing. I don't know what the hell they're doing. I mean, Barry Moore <laughs> just out like playing with guns every day. I don't know what the hell they're doing every day. I don't. Well, you know, I think um, to uh, Congresswoman Sewell's credit. She probably feels a very, you know, when you, you know, we talked, we were talking about Selma in the first segment and that's her hometown. And, and so she, I think probably feels a burden, a personal burden that uh, some of these others may not feel, you know, um, coming from uh, a town like Selma and, and understanding the, uh, the needs of, of that, uh, of that area, you know, I've, yeah. One of my trips down to um, uh, Lowndes County with uh, Catherine Flowers, our friend Catherine Flowers, uh, you know, uh, Congresswoman Sewell was there at least once, I know, mm-hmm. uh, one of those events. And, um, you know, I think uh, I think she does feel a, uh, a connection to uh, that area and to the needs of the people there. 
Yeah, yeah, that's good. Catherine Flowers. That's somebody else who's lost our number around here. That's, uh, you know, just can't get <laughs> Catherine back on. She went big time on us, and then, uh, you know, we can't get her back on. Dude, she is, so, she is so busy, man. In uh, fact, she's doing good work, too. I don't, she I don't is. diminish she, anything she does. She's doing fantastic she, work for people. She is. But she is so busy, man. Yeah. So yeah, busy. That's, uh, hope, hopefully, we'll get, we'll get Catherine back on at some point, uh, you know, when yeah. she gets finished with her 60 Minutes interviews and things, uh, <laughs> and uh, comes back to us lowly folk here in Alabama. Uh, we, we can get her on to, to talk about stuff. Uh, before we get to the uh, right-wing yeah. note of the week, I know we talked about this a little bit last week. Mm-hmm. We wrote a column um, uh, this week about the Alabama basketball situation. Uh, Brandon Miller, their talented freshman uh, that uh, was involved in a uh, – he and, and another player, Darius Miles, and then there was also a third player who was also present uh, at the scene of a shooting in which uh, took the life of a young mother in Tuscaloosa. And, uh, you know, Miller, we now know, was texted by Darius Miles uh, to bring a gun to the scene – uh, you know, they claim he never touched it or whatever. But there was a conversation, according to police, that took place between Miles and Miller about the gun, in which Miller told him that the, it, where it was in the car, and Miles got it out, and all of it over a stupid bar fight. Okay, uh, it was all, all some guy wanted, wanted to talk to this girl. She was with her boyfriend. They told him what she wasn't interested. It, you know, things ha- stupid. It happens every single Friday, Saturday mm-hmm. night in every college mm-hmm. town in America. And, uh, and, but this one ended up costing her her life because she was sitting in the passenger seat when people ignorantly started shooting at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my column that I wrote was basically, I don't understand the outrage that people have in this state over uh, Miller's involvement in this, uh, because if I'm not mistaken, isn't this the world that you wanted to create mm-hmm. for these kids to live in? Uh, this is through all of our gun laws or our rolling back of gun laws. Is this not the world that you wanted for them? Uh, you know, he had a gun in his car, which was properly registered uh, to another person that was in his car, was carried around. You no longer need a concealed carry permit to haul a loaded weapon around in the pa- in the yeah. inside the car when you're moving around. You no longer need that. You can mm. it. You we tried to pass a law that raised the age of uh, handgun ownership to 21. Didn't do that. Didn't work either. So nope. over 18, all of them in the car were over 18. Uh, he had uh, he had the handgun. It was registered to him. I, hell, I don't I'm even sure it needed to be registered for that for that matter. Uh, all it probably, needed to be was legal. Probably not. Yeah, he yeah. purchased it. And he wasn't a felon, so you know. Yeah. I mean, in the state of Alabama, you can walk mm-hmm. into a, into a, a Walmart or whatever store, uh, Dick Sporting Goods, buy yourself a handgun, strap it onto your side right to my, today, loaded full mm-hmm. of of bullets, all the bullets you can buy. And it doesn't go into a database and uh, outside of a standard background check. Nobody's going to say a word and you don't have to have the first training course at all. So this is so, the world that we told them about. OK, this so is, what are you mad about? This is so I mean, listening to you break it down like that, it's just so asinine. I mean, it's stupid. we won't we won't let a kid get behind the wheel of a car. Until he's of a certain or she is of a certain age, but then we we make sure they get training, and then and then they have to take a test. Yeah, 
And then they have to, um, you know, they have to abide by strict laws, um, you know, and, 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 you know, there's, and, and, and we're keeping track of those, of their driving record. I mean, yes. we, we have an intricate process for all of that stuff and nothing now, essentially nothing now for yeah. guns in, a, right. in this state. Yeah. That's we have to register so our senseless. cars. Yeah, we have to register our cars. And it's like the a comedian, uh, Steve Hostetler or something, that says, you, have you ever heard anybody at the line at the DMV when they had to register their car screaming, oh, they're coming for our cars? You know, exactly. it's not. You know, it's, it's, no, it's dumb. It's, a, it's so idiotic, man. It is, it is beyond lunacy what we have done. And, and, and we have done, we, this is what we've pitched. We've pitched that these guns are going to make us safer. More guns make us safer, right? You know, that, that is said all the time. And anybody tries to deny that, you know you're lying. All right? Not only that, in pitching this, this world, they have said that the a good guy with a gun, you know, this good guy with a gun scenario oh, is going to protect goodness. us all. You know what I mean? And that, that yeah. plays right into this hero complex that so many people have. Not only that, we, we, we see them sold all the time with marketing materials and pushed out on Facebook. And we see people who, who own these weapons tie, directly tying owning a weapon, owning a handgun to masculinity. And, and how much of a man you are and how badass you are, you know. And in the same breath, they'll talk about, well, I'm protecting my family. You know, well, I don't see you with pictures of you and your deadbolt door, okay? But that's a hell of a lot more protection of you and you and your dog, you know. Uh, you know what I mean? It's not it, – but that's – this is the image that's presented is of this, you know, this masculine man, you know, that's a badass that's had – because he has these guns, you know, wherever, you know, and, and – ha- and can pull them out and shoot people, you know, and shoot so, bad guys and end these mass shootings before they ever start. And that is the image yeah. that we have sold to people and to young adults, young adults, 18 to 21 year olds. Yeah. So I was talking to my, uh, my buddy, uh, who has been a uh, chief of police in a number of jurisdictions and, and, uh, head has, has run, um, uh, security or or policing for private institutions, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he was he he made a really interesting point about uh, how there's a huge difference between a person who does not train regularly mm-hmm. and who doesn't get the kind of really intense thorough training that people in law enforcement, professional law enforcement professionals get, um, you know, he was like, man, there's a huge difference. So in a time of crisis, uh, you know, you, you, you really, uh, you may end up having, okay. Yeah. You may have people that are armed who in theory mm-hmm. can, can hold off some kind of a, an attack. But when it comes to the actual execution He's like, man, mm-mm. he said it's a major <laughs> yeah. problem. And yeah. and then he also pointed out that there are even cases, and of course we've seen this, you know, uh, covered in the media, there are even cases where professional law enforcement people have failed to act, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was fear or whatever the situation yeah, was. Yeah, the Uvalde guys, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it failed to act. So, you know, if if they if they go through that kind of situation, you know, then what's it going to be like? And so, and so what I'm saying, Josh, is 
it really concerns me as a citizen that I may be in my local Target store or Walmart or whatever it is, or I may be at church or wherever yeah. it is, and and somebody decides that they're going to do something, and then we've got people with weapons who are not really trained, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, who are trying to, you know, you know, and maybe well-being, you yes. know, they, they may be well, you know, good intentioned, trying to protect the rest of us, but don't really know what they're doing what? and not well-trained. Yeah. You know, so then what happens to, is there more collateral damage? You know, yeah. is yes. there more damage to property? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just, it, it is. You know, I wrote a, wrote a column several years ago now, and it was the, you know, the, the basis of it was exactly what you're saying is, you know, you, you, even, even through training, you cannot, you cannot mimic the, uh, just the adrenaline surge the this you know the fear the you know everything that goes into uh, a life or death situation in which you have to fire and while you're being fired upon uh and uh, just the back and forth of this there was a uh there was a situation i want to say it was in brooklyn um and uh, there were two cops involved i remember that because and both cops were soldiers or former military guys so they had been to they had been to Afghanistan, so they had that training. They had police training. They got into a gunfight, uh, basically on a Brooklyn street with some guys on the on a stoop in Brooklyn, and there was some remarkable number of shots fired. Uh, and I'm sure if, if somebody spent some time googling this up, you could probably find the incident that I'm talking about. But I, I want to say there were seventy or eighty shots fired hmm. back and forth. One hmm. guy got hit in the ankle. That was the extent of all of that shooting. Wow. One guy got hit in the ankle, and he wasn't even the guy they were shooting at. Good night. And so, and and, and I, you know, it was they'd been criticized for it or whatever about the the shooting on the street and that, how it went down and everything. But it, it just it just goes to show you. And then there was another incident in New York as well where they ended up shooting and killing an innocent bystander. Police did. Um, and, but, and it was a similar thing, you know, and in both of those cases, these things were, uh, you know, they call them good shoots and I, I hate that term as a good shooting, you know, or whatever, but they were, they were engaged by somebody who was threatening, legitimately threatening their lives and, and, and they were firing back at them. And I'm not suggesting to you that police shouldn't fire weapons or anything like that. What I'm saying is that if these guys are having such trouble hitting targets and doing these things, you're not going to do it, man. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole scenario of these things, are, it's so out of whack and so out of balance. And, um, and you know, so, I used to keep going to comedians. There's another comedian that talks about having a gun in your house, you know, and safely storing it, you know, well, is it, if you're safely storing it, then you're not going to be ready for somebody to break in. You can just hold yeah. on right there just a second. Let me go to my gun safe, you know, right. and it's just, it just is the the resistance to everything that we could possibly do to make this safer, to the gun laws that would tell people that they need to have more care, to the training that we should be requiring to say, hey, this is a serious matter that you could injure other people and your loved ones with, to smart weapons. You know, we have the ability right now to to, to sell guns for not much more than what they cost, in which they would not, you would not be able to fire that weapon unless your fingerprint hit on the on the handle of that gun. 
You know, we, we have the technology to do that. And it, it's not even that expensive of technology. And it, it just, but we've resisted all of it. We've resisted all of it and, and, and in these idiotic ways. And the result of it is what I said in the column, which is you, you've told these guys that it's okay to ride around with a loaded firearm in, the, in, yeah. the, in your car. You've told them that riding around with a firearm is their, is their way to protect themselves, that that's how they're supposed to do it. You're supposed to be protecting yourself like this. You know, You're, you've told them that when they get into arguments, it's okay to have the gun there because that's how they protect themselves and mm-hmm. their families. Mm-hmm. What did you expect was going to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, are you just... just mad that it's a bunch of black kids that did it? Is that what you're mad about? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it just, you know, it's uh it's it's a very we just I mean, I don't know what else to say other than we just it's a very disturbing time to be an American. Yeah. And and we're not thinking this thing through in a way that um is going to promote the very uh freedoms and liberties that we say uh we espouse, you know, that we we believe in. Um, and I, and I, and I keep going back to the fact, Josh, and I think you may have pointed this out in one of your columns. Um, there's no, we're the only industrialized nation that has these kind of problems. I mean, you go, you go to Europe, they're not, they're not having these gun issues the way we are and these mass shootings and, you know, mass shootings, uh, you know, every day and more guns than people and, all that other stuff. I mean, it's just not there, you know. No. Um, was and, it, uh, Australia had four had four mass shootings between eighty five and ninety six, and they said that's enough of that, mm-hmm. and and they passed laws, and they haven't had one since. Right, right. So I just I don't understand it, man. It's um, I I think there's a special place. I mean, this is this is sort of how I bottom line it. I just think there's going to be a special place in hell for those who believe in hell. There's going to be a special place in hell for the NRA and um, and 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 also for these politicians who have allowed themselves to be compromised by the NRA. It's just going to be a special place in hell for them, man. Uh, I, we we do not disagree, and and to your point uh, about the way things are. Uh, I guess that's a good kind of segue into our uh, right wing note of the week um, mm-hmm. and, and people who are perfectly willing uh, to embrace dangerous and uh, and deadly rhetoric, uh, because that's what this is. Uh, it's, it's dangerous and deadly rhetoric as well. And that's uh, uh, we're, we're, our right wing note of the week is the Alabama Republican Party uh, for their yep. decision at their most recent winter meeting. Uh, to pass a resolution encouraging laws banning diversity, uh, inclusion, and equality, or diversity, e- equality, and inclusion. Those DEI is what the normal uh, you know, acronym is for this thing. It's uh, DEI uh, policies mm-hmm. uh, in, in workplaces. Uh, and specifically, they're talking about public workplaces, so, so yeah. state offices and those types of things. They want to de- they want to ban any sort of training in which they the training will explore policies of, uh, related to diversity, uh, equality, and inclusion in the workplace. In the meantime, in the meantime, there was just a study released by a legislative group that was focused on uh, specifically wage gap issues. 
And you'll be shocked to learn hmm. that minority women earn roughly 50 cents on the dollar to white, what a white man earned. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah, you know, wonder how that happened. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it just, man, it just galls you, doesn't it? Doesn't it just, God bless. What? Who would have ever thought that in 2023 people would be saying out loud, we got to get rid of this diversity, equality, and inclusion stuff. Yeah. 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 It's not, you know, this is not the America that, um, that Dr. King and Viola Liuzzo and the Reverend Jonathan Daniels and so many others died for, you know, El Haj Malik Shabazz, mm-hmm. uh, El Shabazz. I mean, you know, it, it's, they, this is not the America that they died for. This is not the America that, um, that we had envisioned. Uh, coming out of, you know, the civil rights era, you know, um, it's, it's like, uh, there's a, I mean, it's just, there's no question. There's a conscious effort to turn back the clock, you know, and while I don't know that they will be uh, successful in terms of taking us back to, um, um, you know, Jim Crow, let's say, uh, I do believe that attitudinally, that we're they're going to be successful. In fact, they already have been successful. You know, yeah. you've yeah. got a president and a, and a mate and a governor of a state who you know openly espouse um, you know white supremacist kinds of attitudes and policies. You know, I should say former president. You know, so attitudinally, yes, they're, they've they've been successful, and and that does have an impact on the culture overall, which is why you and I, Josh, have to keep doing what we're doing. The Southern Poverty Law Center has to keep doing what they're doing. The Equal Justice Initiative has to keep doing what they're doing. The NAACP, you know, I mean, we can name a few others. You know, we've all got to just be vigilant, man. We got to keep challenging uh, this sort of uh, whitewashing of America uh, because it it just takes us back, man. It's based on a falsehood and a lie, and it takes us back. Yeah. Yeah, it you're right. I mean, it just um it's it's a it's a it's a dog whistle for, you know, for for racist uh, the racist base um that makes up that is so important in this state in particular. Um you know, there was another study uh released this week about at, uh attitudes towards abortion law. Mm, and only yeah. 12% of Alabamians, only 12% of Alabamians support a law banning abortion in all cases, which is essentially the law that we have in place, right? Mm-hmm. Now, which tells you that that 12, we have, we have so gerrymandered this state while simultaneously, uh, and, and in conjunction with the gerrymandering, has helped to tamp down political engagement uh, in this state. So 12% is now drive as a driving force for legislation for everything for what we do what we're doing in this state we've allowed through all through what we've done here we've allowed the most eccentric and extreme people to have the biggest voice because we have so gerrymandered things to the point that we know these if these folks are disengaged with you on the republican side they know that that could cost them in a primary and they have nothing to worry about in the general because the, there's no way the Democrats can win, and vice versa. In a lot of cases, uh, in a much much smaller 
uh, case, uh, you know, the same way with Democrats in certain districts as well, is mm-hmm. they know that the Republicans are not going to beat them. And and so it just sets up this polarizing uh, landscape in which the majority of the people of the state, I mean, the overwhelming majority of the people of the state aren't even engaged in the process at all. Right. And those that are, are the most extreme uh, and and the, the some of the worst people. And so you end up where a platform criticizing diversity, equality, and inclusion is a winner. In yeah. 2023, it's a winner for you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you cited, uh, and I meant to raise that and forgot, you cited that uh, that survey of people uh, about abortion. Uh, 55% of Alabamians. Yeah. Uh, uh, favor abortion being legal in most cases. Yeah. Well, you sure wouldn't know that by the laws we've passed. It you wouldn't, sure wouldn't. Would. You sure wouldn't see that. You sure wouldn't get that sentiment yeah. based on how aggressive we've been here in shutting yeah. down abortion in this state. Eighty-eight percent of the people of this state don't support the law that we have on the books, and yet our attorney general is running around trying to figure out a way to lock women up. Yep. You know what I mean, man. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's a hell of a statement on political engagement. Although I will say, if you wanted to be a positive person, a positive and have a positive outlook, twelve percent is pretty damn easy to overcome. Yeah, you, but but to do it, and this gets into a whole another conversation. You got to be organized. Yep, and you got to have a and you got to have a, a a plan and a structure. You know, and uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, as we have discussed ad nauseum yes. on this podcast, we do not. We do not. We, no, do, we do not. not. We but do if not. we did, but if man, we, did. we could make some headway. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, it's you know, it, I'm just saying, it, it the possibility remains. Uh, yeah. As uh, as they as they say, hope springs eternal. Uh, so you know, yeah, we'll leave you on. Uh, we'll leave you with that uh, optimistic note, and then I'll <laughs> tell you. Until next week, y'all be safe out there. Peace. <laughs>